My name is Tina Kant, and I am Director of Africana Studies, as well as Professor of Africana Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies here at Barnard. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you all out on a cruel and beastly night of yet another storm in the city of New York. So welcome, welcome for being intrepid enough to get here and um, gracing us with your presence. Um, I am very, very pleased to be able to welcome you on behalf of Africana Studies to a celebration. This is a celebration of two major events. On the one hand, the first event is the fact that Africana Studies at Barnard College is 20 years old this year. Now, there are several people who are in this audience who are responsible, who are pioneer alumni or uh, faculty members or students who were responsible for the fact that Africana Studies actually happened. Usually when we say we're 20 years old, uh, folks tend to say, well, I never thought, I never dreamed we would come this far. I'm looking at you, Francis. Um, but we have come that far. And this event is to celebrate really how far we have, in fact, come. Um, the 20-year-old Africana Studies program at Barnard is the result of student activism, fortitude, and insistence. And it's equally the product of the labors, insights, and resourcefulness of faculty and administrators. It is this fortitude, this resourcefulness, and inspirations uh, inspiration of Africana faculty, students, administrators, and alumni that we are here to celebrate today. We have decided to focus our celebration on honoring one of Barnard's most distinguished black alumni, an individual who embodies just this very spirit of courage, fortitude, and resilience, Ms. Endazaki Shange. Each year, Africana Studies honors an alum whose work has inspired our community and represents the ideals that we strive to achieve in our teaching, our research, and our activism. Endosake Shange's body of work has served that function for multiple generations of Barnard women, as well as its faculty and staff. But it is not just her illustrious body of work that inspires us. It is her ability to continue that work in the face of physical challenges, of illness, and her capacity to triumph over disabilities related to two strokes and their, their, their effects on her body by continuing to write and to dream and to share those dreams with us through her words. This inspires us as well. Ms. Shange, it is an honor to welcome you back to campus as our Africana Studies Distinguished Alum. Thank you for coming. So this is the first of three events that we are having, we are, we are celebrating as part of the anniversary. On February 14th, 
Ms. Shange, we return to Barnard to participate in a conversation with the esteemed choreographer, Diane McIntyre, which will be followed by a student performance of her work. On February 15th, we will be hosting a day-long conference entitled The Worlds, or Words, Worlds and Worlds, of Indasake Shange. And we encourage you to check out the Africana Studies at Barnard website for detailed information that will be forthcoming and posted about both of these events. This evening, following the screening of Tyler Perry's film adaptation of her choreo play, uh, Ms. Shange will be joined here on the podium with our own Professor Monica Miller and our colleague from Dartmouth College, Professor uh, Shoika Diggs-Colbert, uh, in a candid conversation about for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow ain't enough. Personally, I cannot wait for that conversation and the insights and critiques that they're prepared to share with us. So, I am going to get off the stage right now. There's no stage. I'm going to get out of your sight right now. <laughs> um, what I need to tell you is that the screening will, will follow directly after I'm done. And then we're gonna have a short, maybe five to 10 minute break so that folks can assemble up here at the podium. Right now, I ask you to get comfortable and to prepare to engage the worlds and the works and the adaptation or interpretation of for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow ain't enough. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the discussion portion of the evening. Uh, my name is Monica Miller, and I'm uh, in the English Department and Africana Studies Department here at Barnard. Uh, it's my pleasure um, to be here tonight with Ms. Shange and with Soisha Diggs-Colbert um, to talk about the film. Um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce Soisha. She's gonna speak for a couple of, um, for about 10 minutes and kind of set up, uh, uh, give us a little frame for thinking about the, um, the original choreo poem. And, uh, and the film that we've just seen. And then um, I think we'll open it up to questions. Um, I have some comments also that I'm gonna just kind of, if it comes up, I'll um, introduce them into the discussion, but I don't wanna take up time uh, doing that. I'd rather get to your questions, um, especially because we are so honored to have Ms. Shange here tonight. Soisha Colbert is an assistant professor of English at Dartmouth College. Her first book, The African American Theatrical Body, Reception, Performance, and the Stage, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2011, explore, explores how African American dramatists stage black performances as acts of recuperation and restoration. Colbert is currently working on a second book project entitled Black Movements, Performance, Politics, and Migration. She has published articles and reviews on James Baldwin, Alice Childress, August Wilson, Lynn Nottage, Katori Hall, and Susan Laurie Parks in the African American Review, Theater Journal, and Theater Topics, and in the collections Contemporary African American Women Playwrights, A Casebook, and August Wilson Completing the Cycle. Founder of the New England Black Scholars Collective, Colbert is the recipient of a Woodrow Wilson Foundation Career Enhancement Fellowship, a Stanford Humanities Postdoctoral Fellowship, a Mellon Summer Research Grant, and the Robert W. Woodruff Library Fellowship. Recent undergraduate classes include Black Theater USA, 
Modern Black Literature, American Drama, Introduction to African American Studies, The Drama of August Wilson and Susan Laurie Parks, Contemporary Playwrights of Color, Race, and Performance. Her interests span the 19th to 21st centuries, from William Wells Brown to Beyonce, from poetics to performance. I'm particularly excited to welcome Soisha here tonight because she is a professor at my alma mater, um, and I'm really happy she's there. <laughs> so, thank you, Soisha. Thank you, it's such an honor to be on um, a panel with Ms. Shange and to have an opportunity to talk about For Colored Girls, which um, has been so impactful, I'm sure, in all of our lives um, and in my life personally. Tyler Perry's multi-million dollar film business hinges on his ability to make it plain, to tell familiar stories in a familiar way. Whether drawing from melodrama or the gospel play tradition, Perry produces images and stories that his audiences have heard before and yearn to hear again. And For Colored Girls, an adaptation of Intezaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, Perry takes on another, unfortunately, all too familiar story, violence against black women. Although the narrative of violence against black women, violence against women, particularly black women, was not commonplace in the mid-1970s when Shange introduced the world to her play, it has become part of the national narrative in ways that we should investigate in our discussion today and our ongoing national dialogue. Shange's Tony Award-winning play captivated audiences not only because it revealed the then hidden story of black domestic violence, but also because it introduced the world to the choreo poem, an avant-garde form that mix mixes spoken word poetry and dance. Shange's play depicts the coming of age of seven black women whose names are lady in brown, yellow, orange, red, purple, blue, and green. As the playwright describes in the introduction to the 2010 Scribner edition, the poems introduce the girls to other kinds of people of color, other worlds, to adventure and kindness and cruelty, cruelty that we usually think we face alone, but we don't. We discover that by sharing with each other, we find strength to go on. The poems are the play's first hint of the global misogyny that we women face. The collectivity created in the plays offers a model of grassroots feminism that denies the ubiquitous and often invisible power of misogyny to hold because it not only places the girl's experiences in relationship to one another, it situates that interrelation as a place to find strength. The women experience violence, loss, betrayal, laughter, and love. Most importantly, they learn how to come together as women to create supportive community, coming together, or what the play describes as a laying on of hands. No easy resolution, but a triumphant one nonetheless. The play began to take shape through poetry readings at the Bacchanal, a woman's bar outside of Berkeley, California. With the encouragement of Shange's sister, Ifa Baeza, Shange transformed her poetry into a play with multiple <coughs> instead of a single <coughs> As Shange described, in 1975, Paula Moss, a dancer with, the MFA, with an MFA from Irvine and I, drove across country from San Francisco with for, color, for, with for Color Girls in its nascent form to perform at the Alternative Newport Jazz Festival at Studio Rabiba in Lower Manhattan. The dramatic shape evolved at Woody King's Federal Theater and continued to grow through productions at the Public Theater, which garnered widespread acclaim, 
and later on Broadway at the Booth Theater. The play was published in 1977, and a version of the play became a made-for-television movie in 1982. Baeza described the transformation thusly. While Zaki fully imagined the title and concept of her color girls in San Francisco, the work as people know it took shape in those formative months in New York. The first major transformation for color girls now had a cast. Seven actresses who would inform the performance with their experiences, voices, voice timbers, body types, and spirits. The slightly rolled R's of Lori Carlos, the doe-eyed innocence of Janet Leguie, the vixen sassiness of Aku Kadago, the Beninois stature of Rise Collins, and the gravitas of Trezina Beverly. They took ownership of Zaki's words, embodied them, her poetry individuated. I'm outside New York, Chicago, St. Louis. The frame that Zaki used to mark her singular journey across the country passed through a prism of voices and became a spectrum of experience. The solo became an ensemble. In Perry's adaptation of Shange's play, he adds characters, shortens the title, and inserts narrative to make the story more accessible to viewers. The film features backstories and dialogue to help situate Shange's lyric poetry. Perry's film succeeds where others have failed, monetarily at least, by giving melodrama a black twist. Melodrama by nature is excessive. We can all name an extreme situation featured in Desperate Housewives, Big Love, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Grey's Anatomy, that tests the limits of believability. Characters returning from the dead, the hero arriving just in the nick of time to foil a fiendish plot, or the materialization of a conveniently lost and now suddenly found family member, melodrama thrives on pushing realism to its breaking point only to reestablish order by the end of the broadcast. Melodrama draws us in with the promise that the good guys will win and the bad guys will be punished. The promise secures us for the roller coaster ride of emotions and scenarios that we glad gladly witness in order to return to the promise of order. Black culture too desires predictable outcomes and Perry's films deliver. The films fulfill a promise that there is some easy answer to complicated problems, a cheating spouse, an abusive partner, a drug addicted parent, or a financial crisis. And they use familiar images, scenarios, and cultural crises to blacken the melodramatic form. Mixing some of our favorites and the cast of For Color Girls, most talented actresses and actors, and you have a recipe for success at the box office. In many of the discussions that have followed Perry's film's adaptation of Shange's groundbreaking play, critics have suggested that the film adds to the play's rich legacy by introducing Shange's work to a mass audience. In addition, I would contend that Shange's influence is felt in the dozens of performances of the play across college campuses each year, alongside the popularization of spoken word poetry as a dramatic form. For colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, not only speaks the unspeakable, but it also provides a form for the telling. Thank you. I'm gonna change the script a little bit and ask one question, I can't help myself, sorry. <laughs> um, and this is for both of you, um, just to kind of get us started. Uh, the New York Times review of For Colored Girls, the film declared that, quote, Mr. Perry is, it goes without saying, a maximalist, informed by theatrical traditions from the church and his stage work on the Chitlin Circuit and the golden age of Hollywood. He likes big moments, glamorous stars, swells of music and tears that fall like rain and sometimes hail." 
He has a, quote, love of melodramatic excess that initially seem antithetical to Ms. Shange's ferociously unsentimental original. Clearly, the adaptation of an original theatrical drama, a genre, sorry, the choreo poem, to major motion picture would be a challenge for any director, and perhaps Tyler Perry in particular, with For Colored Girls. I was wondering if both of you could comment a little bit on what you saw as Perry's greatest challenge in the adaptation, and I thought um, when uh, Professor Camps kind of noted the difference between perhaps adaptation and interpretation, I also think we can think about the difference between those two things. Um, what was Perry's greatest challenge in the adaptation and how he handled that challenge either narratively or visually? You ready for me? I think primarily Tyler Perry's initial challenge was to understand what he was about to tackle. Um, what I had to work on and through with him during the time that we were working on the development of the alleged screenplay was um, his understanding of the women as a group, mm. of the women individually, mm. of their experiences, of the legitimacy of their experiences, of the lack of rancor uh, and tears. When I was watching the movie just now, I couldn't get over how many times they had to talk through tears. <laughs> I was like to myself, I said, well, I remember crying when we did this show, but it was at the end of a poem when everybody had finished. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember crying through the words of something. And I, was, I would look at the movie and I'd say, oh, that's really peculiar. And anyway, so that's it. I digress, so I'll get back to what I was saying. So those are the initial things. And, and also the other problem I had with his other challenge, which is truly his own particular challenge, was to keep uh, a God and devil religion out of the show. He can't seem to do without that. But I had no character in white. There was no deviltry or God worship in the show. And there certainly wasn't any retribution from God to any of the women. So that to me was a, a, a really blatant imposition of his vision of the world on my work, which, was, which could have been a challenge, but it, obviously he didn't even perceive of it that way. Mm. I mean, I think that I would agree that there's a certain um, ethical paradigm that Perry is invested in um, that I think gets in the way in the certain it gets in the way of um, the adaptation of the work uh, because it inserts things that were not there and don't advance um, what I understand as the idea of the work, which is this idea of you know a, a collectivity of women coming together across differences um, in order to work through 
these life-changing moments, some of which are very brutally painful and other with, others of which are joyful. And the, the thing that was shocking to me about the film, this is going off on a tangent a little bit, is, is the um, lack of joy, which every time I've seen a production of the, of the play, I felt joyful, even through some of the really difficult moments. So I think that part of the difficulty for me of the adaptation is dealing with such a complicated form, and I think that would be a difficulty for any director, mm -hmm. and making that translatable to a mass audience, um, and a film audience. And so that's part of why um, I think that he tries to, he inserts things to help us along the way, but what's there in the play, which is not there in the film, is the way that movement and embodiment is what helps us along. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. instead of creating transitions through music and through embodiment, he creates transitions through dialogue, which I think is a more familiar form, but it, it changes the dynamic of the, of the piece. Thank you. Should we start with questions from the audience? Questions and comments? This isn't just in the tenor of gossip, but there had been um, a story circulating that there was a, a screenplay done by a black woman before Tyler Perry uh, picked up the film. Is that true? That's not, that's not gossip. That's true. Okay. Can you tell us more about it? Yes, her name is Nzinga Stewart, and she has the same agent as Tyler Perry. And uh, she had come to me with the idea of to do to do Sassafras initially, wasn't it? Or was it the other way around? It was for for colored girls, all right. I take it back. It was for for colored girls. And and we worked on a script and she worked on a script and we were moving forward when she, we were going through Lionsgate. And Tyler Perry also works with Lionsgate. So Nzinga, I was very happy working with Nzinga. So when Zinga turned the script into Lionsgate, they decided it needed some more work, and so she went to work on it some more. While she was walking around the studio lots one day, she ran into Tyler Perry, who offered to lend his assistance to her. And I don't know what that transaction was about, I just know what happened. And then the next thing I heard was I got a phone call from Tyler Perry, who, who I did not know, and whose movies I don't go see. Um, but I, I knew who he was. I was just quite surprised to hear from Tyler Perry, because we had, there was another group of people who were trying to mount a, 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 a Broadway rendition of For Colored Girls in New York. And they had contacted Tyler Perry as an investor. And I think he turned us down. I'm sure of it, as a matter of fact. So I was quite surprised to hear from Mr. Perry on my private line. So anyway, I said, hello. And so he said that, was that, was that the first time he said to me, could he ask me a question? Or he, he called me and asked me. He said he had never read the book. Right, he, he, right okay. He, he had never read the book and couldn't get a copy. And I'm going to myself. I said, well, you don't have to call me to do that, you know. So, so I said, well, sure, you know. You, you can get them in the bookstore where you live. 
And so then that was that phone call. And then, then I got another phone call. And that was a phone call when he said, could he ask me a question? And I said, yeah. And he said uh, that he would be, would he would be interested in doing, would I be interested in doing a film uh, for Color Girls with him? And I said, I'd have to really think about that very seriously. So I, then I hung up the phone. And I, and I sat down on the bed and I said, this is absolute madness. <laughs> I mean, what, I don't even like the man's movies because there's so, there's just too much broad laughter in it and I can't take it. And I said, so what would, what would he do with it? And I said, yeah, but he's, he works in his own singular realm just like you do. And he's, he's traipsed out on his own, his own characters just like you have. And so I said, well, maybe, maybe there's something akin in our spirits that, that can work. And then I said to myself, well, there's always a problem of the, of, of I didn't think of the religion problem. I, uh, there's always a problem of Mother Dear, of Madia, as he calls her. And I said to myself, I said, well, I don't want her in my movie. <laughs> Which would be not having Tyler Perry. And I said, so if, if he comes, does she come? And so I said to myself, well, these are things we have to talk about. So then the white people at Lionsgate called <laughs> with Tyler Perry on the line. And they were both talking to me at the same, the two of them, his name was Michael Pasternak. So Michael Pasternak and Tyler Perry were talking to me and they were both very excited that I was talking to them about this possibility. And so I said, well, um, there's two things that I, I, I really would have to put my foot down about. And they said, well, what are they? And I said, well, first of all, Madhya can't be in it. <laughs> and they said, okay. And I said, I said, I mean, really, I mean, she can't be in it. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, no appearance, no, no wigs, no nothing. And um, they said, okay. I said, all right, that's done. Then I said, the second thing is, the, the poems have to be done in the language in which they were written. There can't be any changes in, of, in the language of the poems themselves. And so they said, okay. And I said, well, um, in that case, I guess we can go forward. And so that's how that happened. And Zinga was supposed to have been made executive producer of the project. And she's also supposed to have gotten another film to do as well. So I'm not sure if that happened. Oh, it did happen. Yeah, she's the credit. Oh, okay, so, so it did happen. Oh, I'm sorry. We don't know if she got the other film. I'm sure she did. I'm, I really am, because Mike Pazernak wouldn't just lie like that. So, so that's what that happened. So, there, so it wasn't a rumor, it was true. And as far as I know, we're still speaking and everything's on the up and up. Um, thank you so much for explaining all of that. Um, one of my biggest criticisms of the film, and to go back to your question, Professor Miller, is about the language. And I feel that um, the monologues 
just don't match the dialogue that happens at all, and there was no attention paid to that. And I'm wondering if you saw the script beforehand, if the woman who you're speaking of, who was the executive producer, if she really had a hand at all in, in working on the language, because I feel like that is the, the meat of the work, and um, it really takes away from the essence and the beauty of all of it because there's this beautiful poetry being spoken in a way that doesn't fit with this mass-produced, regular, everyday, supposed to be 2012 dialogue. Exactly. Well, um, no, we never saw a script per se. What we would get is we, I would get uh, invited to a, a, a screening of something, say a, a few scenes. But I would never actually, I never actually had a script in my hand until the very, very, very end after this, the movie had been made. But, um, so they never gave me a script and he never worked with anybody on it. He worked by himself. He wouldn't have any joint meetings. Um, see, he didn't take notes when I gave notes. We would have a, a, a meeting scheduled for like three hours, right? And I was supposed to bring in my thoughts and so I'd have my thoughts written down and I'd proceed to tell him and he would never write them down. And I never got any reasonable comments back from him to let me know that he understood what I was talking about. So what you're talking about, this, the segues between the language of the poem and the prose itself, those were never massaged or refined. And one of the ones that really blew me away today, because I haven't seen the film, I guess, in about a year and a half, I must have complained about it last time I saw it. <laughs> but for this version of For Colored Girls, for the stage version that was supposed to go on Broadway, I decided for the 21st century, I needed to update some things in For Colored Girls because they were, it was too old fashioned. And so I realized when I, when I, when I so that's wrong, I take that back. I, I realized that the fact that more women die of, of AIDS and, and HIV between 25 and 44 than any other disease, that it was important for me to have that in the show somewhere because it was important to let young women know that they needed to protect themselves when they had sex, which was not important when For Color Girls came out. It was important not to get pregnant and to know how to stop that, but there wasn't anything else except gonorrhea and syphilis, and you can't do very much about that besides wear a condom. So, so there was nothing, I had to, to write something for this. So I wrote a very intricate three-character piece um, that had to do with the down low and betrayal and um, another girlfriend and black and Puerto Rican people and cultural differences. It was, a, it was, it was, it was, I'd say, four pages long. The, the lines weren't very long, so it was a staccato kind of piece. And it wouldn't have lasted for a whole lot of minutes. 
but it was four pages long, so character was developed and there was texture to it. And it was about a woman contracting HIV and AIDS from a lover who was unfaithful. And they condensed it, this intricate piece I wrote and, and took care, I took a lot of time trying to make every little line mean something. So there were lots of double entendres and stuff going on. They took this poem and condensed it to that little conversation that Janet Jackson had with, with somebody named Carl. I would never name a character Carl. <laughs> I asked Carl, I said, who in the hell is Carl? <laughs> you know, I don't have a character named Carl. And so I so so anyway they, they they took my poem and made it that little bitty conversation with somebody named Carl and and that's what that's what happened to it. And 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 I didn't know that till I saw it the first time. And when I saw it the first time I had the same reaction. What happened to my poem? Where is it? And this is the same thing I asked tonight. Where is my poem? Because I was sitting there prepared to hear my poem. As soon as I heard her say something about HIV and did, where did you go or who were you with or something like that, I said, oh, okay, here we go. Now I can hear my poem. And so I, I've only heard it in rehearsals. I've never heard it full blown out. But it's, it's, it is in the, the latest edition from the Scribner's, from the Scribner's Press of For Color Girls. They have it. <laughs> right away. They have a new poem, the new poems in that one. Thank you for the wonderful presentation and the information that was presented. I was, am blessed enough to see the first um, production <laughs> in the 70s. I, I saw you in Berkeley. Um, uh, as a finance person, one of the questions, and I hope this is in good taste, I appreciate seeing the uh, talent all over the uh, the screen tonight. I did not see that version of it, and I was wondering if it was new and where was I in all of this? I just couldn't see myself. But was there any um, discussion of the finance of what Tyler Perry would contribute uh, to getting? this on the big screen? You have any idea how much money he put up to get this like that with all this violence in it well, against women? Well, I, I think that the film cost $13 million. I think that was what the budget was for the film. And that would cover everything. So it was a cheap film. And, um, and that's, that's all I can tell you. That's what I know. Um, my main question was, if you could go back and change any character, what characteristic would you change? And also, relative to today, would you add any character to the actual play? You mean to the original piece? Yes, to the original piece. Would I change anybody? Um, no, I wouldn't change anybody. I would add my HIV piece. <laughs> I'd add that, and there was um, there was another one I wanted to do that had to do with um, 
there were two other ones that were sort of subplots of each other. I wanted to do one about um, women in the army or the armed forces. And I didn't know what arena in the armed forces. I didn't know if it was gonna be in combat, if it was gonna be casual, if it was gonna be on a date. I didn't know if they were gay. I didn't know, I didn't know any of the particulars of it. I just wanted to do something about women who served in the armed forces. That was one. And the second one was to do something about the girls in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, because I felt so terribly sorry for them because they couldn't do anything about their situations at all. It was, it was life-threatening to try to do anything to alter their situations. And that seemed to be the most pitiful and hopeless situation that I could imagine. So if I, if I was gonna add something, it'd be those, two things plus my HIV piece. So it'd be three things. Now that would mean maybe that we'd have to drop something in order to keep it moving and keep it tight and keep it from being too long. Because I don't like to sit in the theaters too long. I really don't. So it has to keep moving and it has to be tight or I'll get bored and I'll leave. So I don't want to leave my own work so I try to keep those rules. <laughs> But um, that's what I would think. I don't know what I would take out though. That's what I was trying to get at. I tried, to, I thought I had to take something out so we could put the HIV piece in. But when I went to cut stuff, I just couldn't, couldn't pull things apart. It was, it was, they were too blended. It was very hard. If I pulled something out, it would unbalance another section. So I don't, I, it would just be a difficult process, but it could be done. Um, this is, I guess, for anyone on the panel, but what did you feel like the film was successful in doing? Mm -hmm. I know that you talked about, or you mentioned, um, sort of bringing Ntozake Shange's work to a broader audience, but even more specifically, like within the film, was there anything that you thought was particularly well done, or if nothing, why? And just mm -hmm. to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Can I start with that? Um, this is the third time I've seen the film, and the last two times have been very close together. And now I'm actually I'm interacting it more, interacting with the film more as a film now, um, rather than um, as a film kind of on its own merits, rather than only as an adaptation or an interpretation of the original. And this time in particular, I mean, I just can't get enough. And this is kind of interesting for me, maybe can't get enough of Loretta Divine. I'm just sort of like, I, I just don't even know what to do when she's on the screen. And um, which is an interesting thing for me because I feel like she is the kind of, I mean, even though Medea is not part of the film, she brings, she brings a little bit of, like she's the kind of peri emotional core, right? And I love her in this, in this film and I, I, I so, she works for me yeah. um, in a really powerful way. And I think it's partly because she imports some of uh, a stage sensibility, like an actual, you know, being on the stage theatricality to the piece, which both reminds me of its original, of, of the conditions of its original production. And then is just, I mean, she's just a her voice, yeah. like the voice that she brings to the piece is so, I just fall into it 
like I'm drowning, right? So I mean, so I think she works, and and while I do think there was a real disjunction between between you know the words of your poems and the actual dialogue, some of the actual performances of the poems, excerpted from what's surrounding them, are just kind of stunning. So, you know, I also think I mean not that Perry is a really um, he's not a filmmaker who is working on kind of the, ex the experiential nature of the, of the film, like he's not innovative, right, as a filmmaker. And I actually thought that his choice to kind of keep those moments pretty consistent, like close-ups, right, of an individual woman's face while she's delivering the monologue, I thought that was really successful. Because again, it harkened back to the original production of the kind of monologue set piece, um, but also just allowed me to enjoy the actresses, right, who are incredible in this film. I mean, it's a messy film, right? Um, but the individual women involved in it are really knocking it out of the park for the most part. So that's what I thought was working. No, I would agree. I mean, just echoing what you said when Loretta Devine um, does the no assistance poem with the plant, the rhythm of her speech lends itself to blending more seamlessly with the dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there are moments in the, in the um, in the movie where that happens. And it made me think about how um, if they had worked on timing and rhythm in certain ways, it might have made it um, there less of a disjuncture. But I do think that um, the acting is really powerful. I do think the scenes where he has doubling, where there's an overlay um, of someone speaking, where you just hear the voice, and there's another scene, or there's a break. Some of those moments are really powerful. And I like that he opened the movie with dance. And I wish, as I yeah. said before, that there was more integration of that, but I think opening there um, was, a, was a smart way to get into the story. I just remembered something that we haven't talked about, which is the, his use of movement in the movie. Because I, I thought that it was introduced, and it was the rare places it was introduced and executed, there was too little of it. And in some cases, it was too westernized. Because mm. um, uh, most community dance classes are, are black and Latin dance classes for children that are, that are low budget mm -hmm. that we can get into mostly have drums or pianos yeah. that, that play oh, drum and piano music that's familiar to our children. Which is not to say they don't listen to classical music, which is to say that's not what's on the radio. And the other thing is that when there is movement, there was that one segment when he had Seisha, which is a beautiful dance piece. He had Seisha and had this a, a nice sort of Caribbean uh, uh, contractions begin and, uh, and, and a second position going forward. That was started and that was decent looking. And all of a sudden, the next scene is an ambulance and somebody going away with, with the tubes up her nose. And, and the next thing after that is somebody thanking somebody with a check. And all this is taking place during Seishida, and then you go back to the contraction. And all of a sudden, then you go back to somebody else's face who's happy because something else happened. So, so it was the most peculiar use of dance I've ever seen before in my life. But anyway, the use of dance in, in the film was introduced and then, uh, then truncated or, or aborted. 
all of a sudden. And, if, and I feel like another filmmaker could have take, made different choices and added to some of the fluidity that some of us feel is missing. Yeah. Were there other people that, that you considered other than Tyler Perry? I'd never been approached by filmmakers before. Can you tell us about your experience with the telefilm version of For Colored Girls and how it differed from your experience with the film? We should let them in on it that I wrote that one for the television. <laughs> so I have a whole different experience of it and I have a whole different attitude toward it. Because nothing of it was foreign to me. It was from me, so I didn't have any disjunct or something. What I did discover is I don't like writing screenplays. <laughs> I find it really tedious and it interrupts my language, it interrupts dialogue for me. Because you have to put all this stuff about all the visuals and all about all the cameras and how the light looks and what color stuff they're wearing and where they're sitting. None of which interests me unless it's in a novel when I can use it as a whole text. But I can't exhaust myself writing all that kind of information that you're not even going to use as literature. So I, I don't like writing screenplays. And I discovered that. But other than that, I was very happy. And since I wrote it, and I was happy with them not coming, that, that they didn't have to be placed in society for me. They could just appear out of the sky as voices in people's bodies. And I was perfectly happy. I didn't need to know who they were, why they were, what they were doing, what they do tomorrow, or who they like and who their mother is. All of that is not important to me. I can accept them just as they are which is why I didn't have a problem with them not being tied to reality. And I realize that's hard for other people, but that's really how I understand the world. <laughs> so for um, everyone else, or like me, who's not really as familiar with um, the 80s, uh, 90s maybe, um, I wanted to ask you kind of your inspiration. Um, I often kind of attend poetry workshops. And um, in Philly, when I first saw the, um, this movie, we did a workshop on um, the layered kind of characters and what it kind of um, talked about. And one of the things we all kind of tried to find a piece of is what it talks about. And how do you find the inspiration? And maybe if, if you did elaborate, like many people are um, asking about in today's world, would you include um, black criminality? Well, I get inspired by memories and by dreams a lot. I also get inspired by the newspapers. A lot of my stories come directly from a newspaper article. They're usually tiny newspaper articles that are at the bottom of a column, someplace in the back of the business section or the back of, or they're just before you get to the TV part. And um, I find them very helpful. Some of them are tragic and some of them are just funny. But if we keep track of black people and Latin people and Asian people, keep track of them through the newspapers of our daily sort of social lives, um, you can find out amazing things. And you can make amazing stories from them. You can even take big headlines and, and truncate it down to a short story and you can have something really marvelous, you know. Um, but th those are really sad stories, so you have, to, you have to prepare yourself for some trauma, some emotional trauma of your own if you're gonna reach that far to make that headline come alive in a, a real 
tangible way for a reader. Uh, so I guess the biggest thing is to be emotionally available to the text you want to write. I think a lot of maybe the issues that the women face in the movie are sort of generalizable to womanhood, but obviously um, their black experience is completely crucial. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about like the particularities of blackness and um, and and these the sort of conception of womanhood that these characters evoke. Um, one of the things that's on my mind and is the, uh, a line in the movie that goes something like metaphysical. Sorry, colored being colored is a metaphysical problem that I haven't, conquered I haven't, really, haven't figured yeah, out yet. Yeah, which I assume comes directly from your poetry. So if anyone, if you or anyone on the panel could speak about that. I'd if I could tell you the history of white superiority and racism in, in a half an hour, <laughs> I, would, I would attempt to answer that question. And I'm not being flippant, I'm really not. But, um, the question raised was being being colored, being being a woman, being alive, and being colored is a metaphysical metaphysical dilemma I haven't figured out yet, which is true because one being colored or being uh, being uh, a woman, I still am asked in 2012, what am I first, a woman or a feminist? I still get asked that. This is 2012. I was asked that in 1976. I was asked that here at Barnard when I was in 1967 at a consciousness raising group. I mean, how, how long is this going to go on? And how, how many ways are we supposed to compartmentalize ourselves? How many different people are we supposed to be in order to fit into what category? I thought for the longest time that when they said that women that were part had a gender gap with, with the men in, in politics when we vote and that there was, Obama had a favor, favorable gender gap. I had no idea they didn't count colored women when they said gender gap. They mean white women, white single women. They don't mean us. That, we're a separate category. We're not counted around when they say women. That's, that's separate, that's somebody else. That's what I heard on the news last night. So anyway, that's hurtful, but that's part of what happens. And that's why that sentence says, being alive, being colored, and being a woman. All three of those things take place because if we, were, if we weren't alive, we wouldn't have those dilemmas. If we were dead, we would jump out of all that chaos, well, that's the only way out, unless you're going to tackle them. Okay. I think we're going to say thank you to Ms. Shange, <laughs> Professor Colbert. Thank you very much.